Wonderful. If you have your Bibles with you, if you can turn to the book of Philippians, uh, and we're going to be based in Philippians chapter 2 for the first part of of what I'm going to share this morning. Don't worry if you've not got a Bible with you, it will come up uh, on the screen. But just while you're finding your way there, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but have you ever thought that you've come up with a really excellent idea and then within a couple of days just thought actually that wasn't quite <laughs> that's not quite as good as I thought it was uh, if you anything like me actually it's not necessarily days until you realize that sometimes it's minutes before you realize that really was not a very good idea uh, but one such idea uh, that, that comes to my mind is when before Steph and I got married we were considering where we were going to live uh, and we actually thought oh do you know what you can buy uh, these big Thames sailing barges are actually pretty reasonable value and you get a lot for your money and then I was like what a brilliant idea and we started looking at it until I realised that my experience and my skill of DIY on dry land is not that great it's going to be terrible if I try and do those things in a water-based environment uh, so we very quickly moved on uh, from, from that idea but I don't know have you ever been down to, to Standard Key down on the creek and, and you can walk through the boatyard and it's amazing when you walk through, it's a working boatyard, and you can actually see what is involved in maintaining these boats. You've got some of them that are being worked on in the water, others of them have been taken out onto, onto dry dock, and they're, they're doing work and maintaining them, sometimes rebuilding them where, where things have got broken. And I remember walking through, must have been a year or so ago, and there was this, it was quite a small, small boat, it was out on dry dock. And you could see the work that they'd done on it, and it looked spectacular. The work that they'd done and the finish on it, and, and just the, the, the attention to detail that they'd paid was just amazing. And I just looked at it, I thought, well, that's just amazing what they've done. But then when I looked to the other side, there was this massive boat. I say massive, it was, it was a big boat when it was out of the water. Uh, and it was that big where I was looking at the supports and thinking, if they don't work quite as well, I'm in a bit of trouble uh, here. But this other boat was not in the state that that beautifully finished boat was. This had been completely stripped back and stripped bare and you could see that they were kind of really looking at what was underneath to make sure that everything was okay as the first part of them, right, how are we going to build this boat and how are we going to um, uh, kind of get it to where, to where it needs to be. And in that moment, I was kind of, my, my, God really drew my attention to this and particularly in the way that I perhaps think about church in that we can think about the, we can focus our attention sometimes on what we do and how things look. We can think about the way that we do things and uh, you know, think about even things like our church logo and how we publicize church and making sure that our welcome team have badges. And for me, they're kind of like, some of those are like the, like the, almost like the finer detail things that you might see on this beautifully finished boat and those things are important. But sometimes actually what you need to do is to stop uh, and you need to um, strip things back and see what's happening underneath. And I felt that actually with church, it's right that we focus on these things of how we do things and uh, various ways in, and why we do things. And that's important. But actually, we need to, from time to time, strip things back and actually look at what's underneath. And the reason I say that is because really that's what we've been doing through this series. When we're looking at our core, at core values, is saying, let's strip things back and just look at actually what are the fundamental things that we are holding to. Because it's those values, as we've been looking at over these weeks, that, that with them being biblical New Testament values, they bring a biblical shape to the way that we do life within the church and, and live life as Christians. And that's what we've been doing. Uh, and this morning we're looking at the last of three leadership values. We've spent some time looking at, we looked at three doctrinal values, so the things that we believe. We looked at three leadership values, the way that we understand church governance and church leadership. 
to be. And then um, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be moving on in terms of missional values. What is it that the church is called to do? And how do we believe that that should be worked out? And so the value uh, that we have today, Mr. Hugh, if we can have it on there, <laughs> uh, up on the screen, is the, the final one of our leadership values, which is this, is that we're looking for leaders who are servant-hearted. And the value says this, it says that Christian leadership in its essence, is a call to be an example and not an exception. Following the example of Jesus, Christian leaders are meant to serve others, not be served. Christian leadership should be godly, transparent and accessible. Christian leadership exists to multiply ministry, not monopolise it. Christian leaders ought to seek partnership and collaboration with other gospel-shaped leaders, rather than to demonstrate isolation and individualism. There's quite a lot going on. In there, I won't try and cover everything, but there's three key things that I want to draw out from that. But if you were here a couple of weeks ago, if you caught up on uh, the sermon where, where I was speaking about uh, elders in every local church, my starting point for that was really to look at Jesus as the head. That's where I wanted us to come to, to start with. Jesus as the head of the church. Because when we realise and recognise that Jesus is the head of the church, that's the truth that sets the entire tone of New Testament leadership. Everything else flows out from that. So in that week when I was looking at what it is to have elders in every local church, we were saying that Jesus is the head, but the people in the church experience that le his leadership through properly appointed leaders. Okay, So it starts with Jesus, but then there's leadership in place to help people experience that. And then last week when Mike was speaking about the Ephesians 4 ministries... A big part of what he was saying was that actually these are gifts that have been given to the church by who? By Jesus. They're his gifts to the church. So we keep on coming back to Jesus and working out leadership with him kind of as, our, uh, as, as what defines, helps us to define what leadership is and how that works out. And today when we're thinking about what it is to be or to, to have leaders or be leaders who are, who are servant-hearted, what I hope we will see is that, again, this is rooted in Jesus and all about him. So to understand what kind of leaders we're looking for, we need to know what kind of community we're called to be, don't we? Because if the leaders are the ones that, are help, that God has called to help shape the kind of people we're called to be, then we need to know what we're looking to be, and then we know who we're looking for to take us, to help lead us into that place. And so that's what we're going to do for the first part this morning, and then we're going to unpack some of this vision Together, So I'm going to read from uh, verse 2, verse two from verse 1 of Philippians and chapter 2. And this is Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He says that if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own, own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've already mentioned in passing, I mentioned our church logo. And I remember when uh, we've had an, a new logo done in, in, in the fairly recent past. I remember the process of, of working out what, how the logo was going to look and having some designs sent over to us. Uh, and it, there we go, it's in the middle of the core. Wasn't that clever? Um, and then the part of our logo, you can see uh, we have the cross as in, the, in that part <laughs> of our logo. We've got the cross right in the middle of it. And I remember thinking when this was sent through, I was just like, it, it, my initial thing was, I don't know, it seems a bit obvious for a church, doesn't it? And then I was like, well, surely that's a good thing. Because if we, what we need to recognise is that right at the heart of Christianity is the cross. We've spent a lot of time already this morning reflecting on that and worshipping as a response to that. When we took communion, it was all about what, uh, what happened through Jesus going to the cross for us. Because Jesus... God's son was executed on a cross. That term of execution that we would know as crucifixion. And the Bible teaches us that all people have rebelled against God. And because all people have rebelled against God, then separation has come in. So where there was once a relationship there, separation has come. And we're no longer united to God. But Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took our punishment. And he bore that punishment for us, Pete, so helpfully, those verses where he's speaking about he who became, who, he who was, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And that's what Jesus, what happened when Jesus went to the cross. He bore our sin upon himself. He became sin for us in order that we would not bear that punishment. And in doing so, he makes a way for us to be united to the Father. Without the cross, that, wouldn't, that doesn't happen. And then three days later, Jesus rose again. And we have this absolute assurance that what happened to, because Jesus rose again, what happened to Jesus will happen to us. The power of sin and the power of death has been broken. So the cross is, is right at the centre, right at the heart of Christianity. But have you ever wondered why the cross? Why was it? that Jesus was crucified? Why was that the method by which people wanted him to be executed? You see, crucifixion wasn't simply a convenient way of executing criminals and prisoners. It wasn't just the, the, the most efficient way of doing it. There was another element to it. And crucifixion was the ultimate indignity. It was this public statement that the person being crucified was beyond contempt. It was about shame it was about humiliation. It was also used as a warning. It was a public thing. Fairly often this happened not just in the Roman Empire, but this is kind of at the time when Jesus was crucified. It was under the rule of the Roman Empire. What you'll find was that often they would line the roads, that they would perform crucifixions by the roads, so that when people were travelling through, they would see what would happen if they didn't obey, obey the law. Or, or, or if they were, were thinking about rebelling, is this public warning. Don't do that, otherwise you will end up like this. It was such a shameful thing that if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. There was this stigma attached to it. With crucifixion, to say it was painful is the, the biggest understatement that you could ever say. 
Actually, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. It means pain as if you were being crucified. We have a word that comes from it. It was that painful, physically painful. But that pain is magnified by humiliation. And it's magnified by shame. And that's what Jesus endured on the cross. I want us to go back again a couple of weeks ago to when I last spoke. I spent quite a bit of time looking at Jesus as Lord of creation. How it was for him and through him and by him all things were created. Nothing existed outside of him. So we've got Jesus as Lord of creation. So how then can it be that we find Jesus on a cross? Doesn't quite match up, does it? He's Lord of all creation. And yet we, we find him on a cross. Paul tells us in these verses how this came to be. He tells the Philippians that Jesus wasn't overpowered. He wasn't forced. He wasn't trapped or helpless. Paul tells us this. He says that Jesus was fully God. He was in the form of God. He was nothing less than God. He was nothing more than God. Jesus himself is fully God. But Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to hold on to for his own benefit. He wasn't going to hold on to this equality to use for his own advantage or to seek good for himself. But instead, he, he, Paul, uh, Paul continues, he says that he was fully God, did not consider holding on to this equality for his own benefit. But what did he do? He chose to empty himself. We have to understand what Paul is saying here. If we're not careful, when we think about Jesus emptying himself, we can think that he became, emptied himself of, of his, his deity, that he became less than God. That's not what Paul is saying here. Still fully God. When it talks about him emptying himself, that's more about him taking up his humanity and becoming human. Okay? So he's fully God, yet fully man. But he emptied himself, and he took on the role of a servant. Let's, have, let's go back here. Let's think this through again. We've got Lord of all creation in the form of God. He is fully God and yet he, he takes on the role of a servant. He took it on. It wasn't forced on him. He took on that role of a servant. He humbled himself, Paul says. To humble yourself means to make yourself low. Jesus made, he made himself low and was obedient to the Father. And where did that obedience lead him? It led him to the cross. This is what Paul is, is explaining to the Philippians. And then we hit verse 9. One word, it says, therefore. Therefore. So because of what has come before, something is about to happen. So because what, what he's saying with this, therefore he's saying that Jesus' humility and Jesus' obedience results in something happening. It brings something about. Something that results from it. You see, because Jesus refused to assert his own cause, because Jesus refused to use equality with God for his own personal advantage, what has happened? God has exalted him. Again, can we see? In order for him to have been exalted, the first thing that had to happen was for him to, to be obedient and to humble himself. Because he's humbled himself, therefore God has exalted him. He's taken him from that place of, of, of having lowered himself and exalted him and raised him up high above anyone else or anything else. But we have to see the order that, that's come through. Can you see that? He lowered himself, humbled himself, in order that he would be exalted. 
in making himself low, which is what we see ultimately at the cross. That's why I wanted us to focus on what does the cross actually mean. That is how low Jesus made himself. But in making himself low, God the Father has lifted him high above all things, that everyone must now recognise him as Lord. Phil Moore, in his commentary on Philippians, says that because he was willing to become like a slave, God the Father has revealed him to be the ultimate master. Don't overlook the therefore in that passage, because it's key. Because Jesus humbled himself, therefore, he has been exalted. God has exalted him. So you might be thinking, Sam, you're meant to be telling me what kind of community we are called to be. How does this relate to what kind of community we are called to be? The reason I've said that is because Paul tells the Philippian church that the kind of community we are called to, the culture that we are called to, is rooted fully in the person, the work, and the example of Jesus. Which is why I've started with those verses. Let's go back to the start of the chapter and what Paul says. He says that we've been united with Jesus. This is possible because of the cross. So what Pete did such a great job of just highlighting to us what it is to be united to God and to be united to one another because of what the cross, what Jesus accomplished and achieved on the cross for us and what he won for us. This is what Paul's saying. Look, you've been united with Jesus. Not only have you been united with Jesus, but the Holy Spirit lives in you as well. So we've got these two things, these reassurances for the church. You've been united with Jesus. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. Because of these two things, we've been called to live in unity with one another. Which means, as Paul says, we share the same thoughts. We share the same love. We share the same desires. We share the same mind. It's not to say that we don't think for ourselves or it's just this kind of almost a mindless just I don't know it's not a passive thing but it's this sense of actually we are in this and we're sharing this common heart and this common mind and we're sharing this this common love and this way of thinking that is common to us all and again it's not Paul's not just writing to a few what really struck me as I was reading through it really comes through he's he's, it's all of you all of you need to have this mindset among yourselves. This is the way that we're all called to be together. But we also have to recognise, and Paul says, yes, you're called to this unity and this way of living, but you have to recognise that there are challenges and enemies to unity that we have to stay away from. One of them that Paul says is, stay away from selfish ambition. He's not saying don't be ambitious. Actually, ambition in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. It's right to have something that you're aiming for, something that you're perhaps wanting to grow into, something that you're dreaming about, that you want to see come through. Paul's not saying don't be ambitious, but he's saying don't do anything from selfish ambition. If you go back to the Greek, the Greek word for it, this selfish ambition is, uh, you could also look at it as being manoeuvring for position. It's that sense of trying to get yourself where you want to be, or or being fractious, causing division. Because you're only so concerned about what you want to see happen for you. You're not concerned about what's going on with other people. Paul's saying, look, you need to stay away from selfish ambition. And the other thing to stay away from, don't do anything out of conceit. Conceit is sort of wanting this vain glory about ourselves. Trying to achieve something for myself. Coming from that place of I want to receive glory for myself. 
So we've got to stay away from these two things. So what's the remedy? Again, Paul tells us. says that the remedy to selfish ambition and conceit is this. Is to value one another above yourself. To look to other people's needs above your own. It's not saying don't look to your needs or attend to your needs. He's not saying to, to be dismissive of yourself, but he's saying, actually, yeah, you tend to your own needs, but you need to be aware of other people's as well and make sure we see into them. Naturally, at least I, I can spot this in my own life, naturally we look to our own interests. We probably do it without even realising it most of the time. We're kind of looking out for, for the things that we need and the things that we want. But we need to apply it to the needs and interests of others too. And that's something that I don't think necessarily comes naturally to us. Which is why Paul's bringing it up here. And what we'll see actually is that this is a common thing throughout scripture. Jesus had to have conversations with his disciples quite a few times around this whole thing. So it's something that we need to to keep coming back to. And then in verse 5 Paul tells us this. He says that this mindset is only possible because of Jesus. We're to look to Jesus. He's the one who makes it possible, and he's our example of what it looks like to live in this way. In my, in my notes, in my Bible, I thought this was really helpful. It says that Jesus is our model of spiritual growth and progress. Okay, So if you want to know what spiritual growth and progress looks like, you look to Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see that, that this, this, um, the progress of the spiritual life is not, it's not a struggle for supremacy. Rather, it's a deep love of God and love of our neighbour that shows itself through deeds of service. That's, if you want to know what does spiritual growth look like in your life, that's what it looks like. A deep love of God and love of neighbour shown in deeds of service. How do we know that? Because we've seen it in Jesus. Alexander Strauch, I think that's how you say his name, he's written a brilliant book on biblical eldership and in there, this, there's a chapter on servant leadership which was quite helpful for me as I was preparing for this morning. And in there he highlights that love, humility and servanthood are pivotal to the inner life of the Christian community. Three things. Love, humility and servanthood are pivotal to the inner life of Christian community. And then he goes on to say, if you want to know what kind of community we're called to be, listen to this. He says that every local church is to be a servant community that is identified by Christ's love. I'll read that again. Every local church is to be a servant community that is identified by Christ's love. That's who we're called to be. And it's this culture that is established by Jesus. We look to him as our saviour, but we also look to him as our example. Again, this is why Paul draws the attention of the church to Jesus, doesn't he? He says, look to Jesus as your example of what this looks like. I've called you to this way of living, but you're not going to do it unless you... Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the one that makes it possible. See, now, (laughs) the reason why I've covered that first is because knowing what community we are called to be enables us to recognise what kind of leaders we need to have in our churches. Because we want leaders who are able to lead us to become that kind of a church and are working towards that. And I want us to, when we're going to look at this for a little while now, I want us to kind of throw it wider than elders. We've spent some time talking about elders in the first week, but I don't just want us to limit leadership when we're thinking about elders within the church. Actually, I want us to think about the Ephesians 4 ministries that Mike was speaking about last week. There's leadership responsibility within that. 
But not only that, we have people throughout the church who have leadership responsibility in many different areas. Leadership of different teams and different areas of church life as well. So I just want to say that at the outset, don't just limit what I'm going to say in terms of eldership. Let's think about it. And this might affect some of, will affect some of you in this room when you think about actually the, the leadership responsibilities that you have within your church and within your life as well. So let's go back to the boatyard just for a second. See, if we were thinking about leaders, we can look for change on the outside. We can look for different methods of leadership, different techniques of leadership, ways in which to teach people and and see people grow. And again, those are good things. So I'm not dismissing those things. But actually, the primary question we should be asking of leaders is not about the how are you leading, but it's actually about the why are you leading. Because the why question reveals what's going on on the inside. And the question is this. It's quite a simple question, but it's quite a loaded question. It's this, is why are you leading? Is it to serve or to be served? That has to be the primary starting place when we're looking at what kind of leaders we're called to have and we're called to be. Why are you leading? Is it to serve or to be served? And it needs asking because I don't think it's something that comes naturally to us. So we can't assume that it does. We can't assume that everyone who's got a position or responsibility of leadership is coming from that place. So it's something that we need to be aware of. And particularly for, for myself as someone who, who has a leadership responsibility, it's a question that I need to ask myself. And I need to ask myself on a regular basis. Am I looking to be served or am I looking to serve? don't know if anyone's ever asked you a question similar to, uh, can, you, can you do something for me? Ever had that? Can you do something for me? It's quite a vague question, right? I don't know what your stock response is. I have a stock response, which is, depends what you're going to ask, right? <laughs> can you do this for me? Well, it depends what you're going to ask, right? And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide whether I can or not. Well, Jesus found himself in this situation with his disciples once. Uh, he was with his disciples, and then James and John, they were brothers. They come up to Jesus everyone else is there they come up to Jesus and they say teacher we want you to do whatever we ask of you that strikes me as quite a confident question (laughs) perhaps a little arrogant coming up to Jesus and saying look we want you to do what we what we need you to do and Jesus responds in a similar way to how we might he says what is it that you want and they say we want to sit with you one on the left and one on the right when it comes to glory we want that position of being with you seated at your left and seated at your right and Jesus goes on to say actually that's not that's not my decision to make that's already been been decided but can you imagine if you were the other disciples how would you have felt you've got these two guys going up to Jesus right in front of you and they're saying pretty much they're saying forget these guys we us two we want to be where you are we want that position with you in eternity, in glory. We want some of that for ourselves. Don't worry about these other guys. They'll be fine. But this is what we want. How would you have felt? I would have felt pretty angry. I would have thought, why could you not have had this conversation at another time when we're not here? But actually, it's quite helpful that they did have this conversation in front of everyone. Because the scriptures then tell us uh, that, the, that there's this sense of indignation that rose up among the other disciples, and understandably so. 
you see what we see, there was this sense of indignation there, and you can see there's, there's this potential for this fractiousness and this division to be, to be coming in, which is what Paul has already warned the church against, hasn't it, in what we were looking at in Philippians. You see, what we see happening in this situation where Jesus is having this conversation with James and John, and now the other disciples are involved, what we see is what Paul calls the church away from in Philippians 2. These guys are operating out of a place of selfish ambition. They're striving for power. They're looking for position for themselves. And remember, all of these things are enemies of unity, which is what Jesus has called the church to. You see, when you seek to elevate yourself at the expense of others, even and often that can mean pushing others lower than they are in order for you to become higher, you're no longer, love is no longer your motivation. You're not. You're not operating out of a place of love. You want what you want for yourself, regardless of what that might cost other people. These things can cause you to disregard the impact on others, could actually stop you from considering other people altogether in those moments and in what you're looking for. It can be oppressive. It can lead to being manipulative. Where people are there to serve your interests. People are there just to get you where you want to be. And that sounds quite full on, but that's what happens. When, people, when their primary thing is, I want, this, I want power for myself or I want position for myself, I'm operating out of an ambition that is selfish. You're saying, actually, I'm going to look at other people, and as long as I get where I want to be, that's all that matters. And it doesn't matter about anyone else or anyone else that's involved in this. See, rather than building unity, it leads to separation. It will always lead to separation. It will always lead to division. When you have people who are operating, operating out of that place, unity will not be the result, will it? There's no way it can be. There's no way it can be. And Jesus knew that. I'm going to pick up this story in Mark 10, from verse 42. It says that, so the disciples, they've all heard it. They're indignant at James and John. They're not happy at all. It says this, it says that Jesus called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Here we go. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus is drawing attention to himself. He's saying, look to me. You want to see what it looks like to be great? Look to me. You want to see what it looks like to, to, to live in unity with others? Then you need to look to me. You want to know what's considered as great in the kingdom? Look to me. That's Jesus saying. And he compares, James and John are being compared to the leaders of the time. And I, don't, I think that's a timely thing that we need to be aware of. We're not to operate in the way that the leaders of the time are operating. We need to be those who are actually able to stand up to what is seen as even admired in culture or society at large. Ambition, a lot of the time, is seen as a... Ambition is a good thing, but even selfish ambition and power are things that people are seen to... You, you go for this, you take what you want, whatever it costs, as long as you're achieving what you want. Because your fulfilment comes first. That's the message I think that we are sold quite a lot. 
But actually, we need to be those who are willing to go against that, whatever is common <laughs> in the way of thinking in society, if it contradicts the way that Jesus has called us to be. How is greatness defined? How would greatness be defined? If you asked anyone, you'd probably get many different answers inside and outside of the church. But according to Jesus, greatness looks like servanthood. It looks like serving others. So that's what greatness looks like. John Stott said this, which I think is really helpful. He says that to the world and even to the church, sorry, yet the world and even the church is full of Jameses and Johns, go-getters and status seekers, hungry for honour and prestige, measuring life by achievement and everlastingly dreaming of success. They are aggressively ambitious for themselves. This whole mentality is incompatible with the way of the cross. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. He renounced the power of glory, uh, sorry, he renounced the power and glory of heaven and humbled himself to be a slave. He gave himself without reserve and without fear. His obsession was the glory of God and the good of human beings who bear his image. To promote these, he was willing to endure even the shame of the cross. And now he calls us to follow him, not to seek great things for ourselves, but rather to seek first God's rule and God's righteousness. That's just such a helpful summary, really, of where we've got to up until this point. It's going to tie it in with the vision. Because in our vision it says this. We're looking for leaders who follow the example, uh, sorry, following the example of Jesus. Christian leaders are meant to serve others and not be served. That has to be the starting point of Christian leadership. Taking the example of Jesus. Which is kind of what everything up until this point has been building to. But we need to get that foundation in first so we can see where this is coming from. The second thing in the vision I want to highlight is this. Is that leaders are called to be an example They're called to be an example to those that they lead. In 1 Peter 5, this is is speaking to elders. Peter writes this, he says, That I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this is Paul's charge to the elders. He says you're not to be domineering. You're not to be in this for shameful gain, but actually you're called to be examples for those who are under your care. People look to their leaders, or they should look to their leaders, as examples of, of, of how they are to be. They should be a model of what they're looking for. You see, if love, humility and servanthood are pivotal to the, life of the, of, um, to the inner life of Christian community, then leaders should be examples of what it is to love, to be humble and to serve. They have to. If that's a community you're calling to build, then leaders have to be examples of that themselves. So that's what we're looking for. I think we, we need to be careful... Maybe there's a perception that when you talk about humility, humility can be seen as weakness. It can be seen as a weak thing to to lower yourself, to make yourself humble. But humility is not weakness. Humility is worked out of true self-understanding. It comes from a place of really knowing who you are. 
Not only that, it's worked out from a place of godly wisdom. This is how God has called us to be. There's wisdom in this. And finally, it's worked out from a place of self-control. It's that actually, I'm going to control my own desires and I'm going to control my own ambition if it's selfish and I'm going I'm to lower myself in ways that God calls me to lower myself and be humble in ways that God calls me to, lower my, uh, to, to, to humble myself. But there's an element of self-control that comes out of that. that sorry, it goes into being able to do that. So it's not weakness. Neither are servanthood and authority mutually exclusive or incompatible. We don't want to fall into that trap of saying you can't have authority and then also serve. Which is a, a route that you could potentially go down. You see, in these verses that we've just read in 1 Peter, Peter doesn't deny authority. He actually says you, you have been given authority. You've been given God-given uh, authority in the way that you lead. But what he does do is he exposes its misuse. The attitude is the key issue that Peter's addressing. You have authority, but the key issue is what is your attitude to what you have, what you have been given? Alexander Strauch, he said that giftedness and authority, viewed as a means of building up and protecting others, not as a means of controlling or gaining prominence, um, sorry, giftedness and authority are to be viewed as a means of building up and protecting others, not as a means of controlling or gaining prominence or material advantage for the individual. We have to use it well. Last time I spoke, uh, I was asking you to, to remember Mike and I in your prayers, and I brought it right down to the fact that above anything else that we do, or whatever else God has called us to, first and foremost, we're disciples of Jesus. That's what, it, as elders, first and foremost, we're disciples. And the reason I said that is because our identity and trust are not in any calling that we've been given, but they're in Christ. That's where our identity and our security lies. It's in Christ. And that's true of all of us. Think about your life. The different responsibilities you have. The different roles you have. The different ways you're known to different people. Actually, our identity and trust are not in any of those things, but they are in Christ first and foremost. The reason I say this is because leading in a servant-hearted way depends on where our security and our identity are rooted. If they're rooted in Christ, then we are able to, to love and to be humble and to serve in a way that we can't if our identity is rooted in other things. John Piper found him really helpful on this. He said that people are looking for leaders who are satisfied in Jesus. That's what people are looking for. To be led by people who are satisfied in Jesus. Because when people are satisfied in, in Jesus, they know that he is their identity. And because they know that, they want other people to enjoy that for themselves too. So they will lead people into that. And he goes on to say that they are willing to get down low, to be patient, to be willing to wait, and to be willing to serve. But that comes out of knowing who they are in Christ. And this is also key to the final part of the vision I just want to touch on very briefly. And it's this, is that Christian leadership exists to multiply ministry, not to monopolise it. Can't say the word monopolise without thinking of a certain board game. I've, <laughs> I've started many a game of Monopoly. I don't think I've ever finished a game of Monopoly. I've always given up partway through. But what is, what's the aim of Monopoly? What are you trying to achieve? Control. Control. 
you want to, to have, um, you, you're seeking to have exclusive possession or control of the game. That's what you're wanting to do, to gather everything else to yourself at the expense of everyone else. That's how you win in Monopoly. <laughs> but leaders, Christian leaders, aren't meant to monopolize ministry. They're not meant to monopolize the activity of the church to themselves, where they're not meant to seek exclusive possession or control of the ministry of church life, but being secure in their identity and being secure in what God has called them to, they are to equip and to release others into the ministry for themselves. It's about multiplying and not monopolizing it for yourself. It's what Mike was talking about, Ephesians 4, when he was touching on that last week. The gifts have been given to the church. Why? Not to do the ministry, but in order to equip the church for it. They're not there to, to draw all the ministry to themselves. They're there to equip the saints. Each one of us is to be equipped in order to play our role in the ministry of the life and activity of the church. To release others into what God has gifted them in and to what the church has been called to. That quote I read from John Stock. There's a bit in there that really stuck, really struck me when I read it for the first time. He said that Jesus gave himself without reserve and without fear. Jesus had no fear in what he did in making himself humble. <coughs> Excuse me. He had no fear. I think it struck me because thinking that servant-hearted leaders... I'm not afraid of other people surpassing them or going beyond where they've gone. Actually, isn't that what we should be looking for? For others that will go beyond where we've gone before. For those who will surpass where we, what we've achieved and what we've done before. I think that is a sign of someone whose confidence is rooted in Jesus. Because they know it's not about them. Or about their glory or about their power. It's about seeing others equipped for the good of the church. And I think also, Christian leaders being able to, to exist and to multiply ministry. I think there's also a sense of, of being able to recognise that seasons change and seasons end and for leaders to be able to be confident in laying things down. I think there's an element of being servant-hearted in that. Saying it's not about me, it's about what is right for the church. and Perhaps what is right, that, that there's someone else coming through that could do this better than I can and needs, or God is calling them to do that. And there's that sense of, actually, I'm secure enough to be able to lay things down because my identity is not in that. It is in Christ. But again, that plays a role in that, that servant heartedness. See, Fabrician Community Church does not exist for me. It doesn't exist for Mike. It doesn't exist for Mike Betts or Relational Mission. Fabrician Community Church exists for Jesus. We're here for him. It's not about any particular leader apart from him. That's why we exist. And as the one who walked the way of the cross, we look to him as our saviour and we look to him as our example. As our example of love, as our example of humility and our example of servanthood.